It's a sad reality that rarely do we spend as much time pleading with God when things are going good in our lives. When, when something happens that we like, we may spend a little bit of time thanking God. For example, if we got a raise at work, we'd probably thank God for it. Or if we um, had a joy-filled birthday because we made another loop around the sun, we hopefully would thank God for that. But we don't spend a lot of time pleading with God on days when things are going well. We, we thank him and we move on. It, it, really, it takes challenges in our lives for us to stop and plead with God. We, we need disappointments. We need hardships for us to drop to our knees and, and spend time pleading with God in prayer. We, we need to face distress before we find ourselves begging God for mercy. For example, I'm sure all of us can probably recall a time when a loved one was seriously ill. And we spent time pleading with God to restore health or spare life. Maybe we suddenly lost a job or we suffered some other kind of, of, of significant financial hardship. Again, we probably spent long hours pleading with God to provide for the needs of our families. I, I admit, and while I'm not proud of it, I, I will admit, this is the case of my life. I, I pray for my wife on a regular basis, yet, yet I confess that I had not prayed near as fervently, and I do not pray near as fervently now as I did when she was diagnosed with cancer. When she was first diagnosed and she was facing surgery and then treatments, I prayed fervently for her. And honestly, I'll admit that even as she went through her treatments, when it became apparent that they seemed to be working, the fervency of my prayers dropped. My pleading with God for her was, when I examined it, directly related to the level of distress that I felt. Our prayers tend to be rather self-centered, aren't they? I mean, that's just a fact of life. We, we pray for things that we know about. Our prayers are self-centered. That self-centeredness reflects itself really well when we examine what motivates our prayers. Difficulties, rather than blessings, motivate our prayer life. In fact, it may be very well that one of the reasons our lives are, are so filled with difficulties is because our God loves us enough to force us to plead with him. To stress and trials, that's one of the many ways that, that we learn to depend on God. Our psalm this morning demonstrates this truth. It's how... We are taught to depend on God. Our psalm shows us that distress and trials are tools that God has used in lives of his people all the way back to Israel's days when the psalm that we're looking at this morning was written. Through hardships, God motivates his people. As I've entitled the, the sermon, God motivates his people to offer a prayer for mercy. As we turn to Psalm 85 this morning in our series through the third book of the Psalter, we're, we're encountering another psalm that doesn't really give us much information about what was going on when it was written. We, we can't pin down the circumstances in Israel's history to any kind of degree. About the only thing we can say regarding this psalm is it probably comes late in Israel's history. It most likely is written after the exile, when they are back in the land. 
Now, perhaps we can think about the period when Zechariah wrote his book. After all, this afternoon we're coming back to our series in Zechariah, so it's helpful to get our mind into that age of era of Israel's history. Israel had suffered extreme judgment for their sins. They'd been taken away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. The, the fall of Jerusalem had occurred, and the people had been deported. That had happened a, a generation earlier from Zechariah's time. Zechariah's generation, they enjoyed the decree that Cyrus had given, so they were allowed to return to the land. And from a historical perspective in general, this was a positive time in Israel's history. Things were getting better rather than worse. Still, as, as we probably know from our lives, just because things are improving in a general sense, that doesn't mean that everything is hunky-dory. That, that is a technical translation, I'm sure, of the Hebrew somewhere. Hunky-dory. Hardships can pop up at any moment. In, in the blink of an eye, a single phone call can, can change our view of the day. Hardships can enter our life that quick. And, and what is true individually can also hold true for a nation. Our psalm this morning comes from that kind of time in, in the history of Israel when things are... Good overall, but they're not good at the moment. This morning, my, my plan is to develop our main idea as we work our way through our psalm. We're going to break our psalm into three parts, and, and we'll find a portion of our main idea in each part. In, in part one, the, the first three verses of the psalm, we, we find the foundation to our main idea, what, what we're going to build everything on. That foundation is God's past graciousness. God's past graciousness. Let's begin reading Psalm 85. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. It's clear here that, that in these three verses, the psalmist He's remembering how God had graciously dealt with the nation in the past. He, he's looking back to the past and he says, God, you showed favor on your people. God did that by benevolently restoring them from exile. They'd been carried away, as I said, by Nebuchadnezzar, taken to a foreign land, and God showed mercy. He ended their banishment. He brought them back to the promised land. More significantly, the psalmist says, God, you showed mercy by forgiving their sins. Their exile was a clear punishment for sinfulness. Prophet after prophet made that clear. But God now showed mercy. The, the people had not earned their forgiveness. God did not forgive them because they had suffered long enough. God showed mercy. This really is in general, one of the, the problems with the, the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory, the, the idea of purgatory teaches that the God will forgive people only after they've suffered sufficiently for their sins. The reality is there is no possible suffering that is sufficient to earn forgiveness. None. It's impossible. A holy God requires absolute holiness. Any sin... A single sin destroys holiness. That, that means that, 
that any sin, uh, just a single sin, no matter how minor we might think it is, removes the possibility of ever achieving forgiveness because no amount of suffering restores holiness. Once lost, holiness can never, ever be reacquired by suffering. Forgiveness is not earned through suffering. Instead, forgiveness comes simply as God's gracious decision. God decides to forgive. God forgave Israel. That's what the psalmist point to. All their sins, they were so heinous. But God forgave them. And he allowed them to return to the land. And simultaneously, God withdrew his wrath. Clearly, God had been angry with the people. He had judged the people. His anger had been poured out, but God withdrew it. He replaced his wrath with gracious favor. All the people had to do was look at where they were living, consider their current residence. Here they are in the land of Israel. That demonstrated that God was showing favor to them. Their lives were living evidence of God's gracious favor. Remember, this is the foundation for the main idea today. God's gracious favor, God's past graciousness. Before we move on, I want each of us to pause and consider what has God done in your past to show graciousness? What evidence do you have in your life that, that God has shown graciousness to you? Now, I hope that most of us can, can begin building our list at the top with salvation. I, I would wish that would be the top of our list for all of us, each one of us, that every one of us could put salvation at the top of our list because all of us were guilty of sinning against our holy God we're just as guilty as the people of Israel were before the exile. We've sinned against God. As the Apostle Paul says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. We deserve God's wrath. We don't deserve his gracious favor. Nonetheless, Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've sang song after song day that, that talked about the death of Christ, how he died for us. God sent his own son, the truly holy son of God, to die in our place. We, we, we could not regain our holiness. We could not suffer enough to gain holiness. Suffering does not create holiness. But Jesus Christ never lost his holiness. He never sinned. The perfect, sinless Son of God died in our place. God graciously offers us forgiveness. He offers us full, eternal forgiveness when we simply accept that Jesus died in our place. He did what we could never do. You can see, suffering can pay the penalty of sin, but can never earn holiness. Only a holy one can suffer to pay sufficiently for the penalty of sin. Those of us who will not accept Jesus Christ as Savior, we will spend all eternity paying through suffering for our sin. But the Holy One of God could pay for 
the real penalty of sin, the full penalty for sin through suffering once. He gave his life for us. The one who is holy suffered for the sins of those who are unholy. And God will accept that substitute. That is mercy. That is grace. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, living right now in the past graciousness of God, your salvation is God's mercy. Your salvation is God's divine favor upon you. You can top your list with, how has God shown past graciousness to me? Salvation. Of course, all of us can add many other aspects of God's past graciousness to our lives. God displays his grace to us over and over. Maybe it might be family you put next in your life. God, God may very well have shown a lot of grace and mercy to you through your family. Friends, even if your family lets you down, God might have placed godly friends in your lives as his gracious favor. This church, I know for, for me, this church is high on my list because you all have been means of God's own grace to me. Time and time again. Our work, our health, our stuff, the, the, the Bibles we possess, the, the Bible studies that we've enjoyed through the years, the, the list goes on and on. These are all ways that God shows grace to us. We have experienced God's grace in our past. So we begin our idea with God's past graciousness. Just like the psalmist does. Our main idea starts there. And then to this foundation, to God's past graciousness, we can add a further idea from the next section of the psalm. God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress. God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress. Reading at verse 4. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. You know, from year to year, things can vary greatly in the nation. Many of us are probably a little uneasy. We don't know what this year will bring in our nation. We have a presidential election, and the one thing we can guess is things will probably change because of it. Things can vary in a nation. They can vary in our individual lives. Just because things were going well for Israel, as I said at one point in history, that does not mean they were going good at every moment. The nation apparently has experienced some sort of hardship. Some sort of hardship that brings forth this cry of distress. Restore us, O God. This is a cry to God. Restore us, O God, of our salvation. Of our salvation. God has shown his grace to the nation in the past. He is known to the psalmist as the saving God. It's only natural when the nation needs saving again that the psalmist would turn to the one who has saved them already in the past. 
So the psalmist here leads the people to cry out to God to do exactly what, what God has done before, to save them, to show mercy again. As I said at the outset, we, we don't know the exact situation. But the psalmist recognized that this current situation is because God is angry with his people again. Whatever they're experiencing, this was not a, a testing type of trial. This was a chastisement type of trial. You know, sometimes God does give hardship in our lives just to strengthen us, to test us. Not because we've done anything wrong, but because we're doing things right and we need to get stronger. But sometimes God gives us chastisement trials. We've been doing things wrong, so it brings hardship as punishment, as discipline to correct us. The psalmist is clear, this is God's correction. He is angry with the nation because of their sin in the nation. Now sometimes I think we step back and we find it hard to imagine how could Israel fall into sin, the, the type of sin that would provoke anger of God when they've already experienced the exile. They've seen the punishment that comes. How could they fall back into sin again? Well, just go home this afternoon and read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra returned to Jerusalem with a group of Jews roughly 80 years after the first group came back. And when he arrives, he finds spiritual and moral decay throughout the previous generation that had returned. Ezra's strong preaching in that book results in a spiritual revival in the nation. They confess of their sin. They repent. And then within that same generation, 14 years later, Nehemiah comes. And as you read through Nehemiah, you find Nehemiah discovering rampant sin again in the land. In Nehemiah chapter 5, he, he deals with wealthy Jews taking advantage of, of less fortunate Jews. In, in chapter 13, Nehemiah has to address issues regarding temple practices because now the temple is finished again. There's a temple. He finds issues with the honoring of the Sabbath going on and intermarrying of foreigners, all specific sins that led to the exile in the first place. These are things that the law clearly addresses. Failures that led to God's wrath in the first place. And the point that both Ezra and Nehemiah make is that, guys, you're reinvigorating God's anger. You are stoking God's wrath again by doing the same thing your forefathers had done. You're ignoring, or, or maybe we ought to say spurning the grace that God showed restoring the nation in the first place. Now, we see the history in Israel. So frankly, as I said, sometimes we puzzle, how could they be so foolish generation after generation? Well, I encourage you to go home and read Ezra and Nehemiah, but before you do that, walk into the bathroom and look in the mirror. Because staring at you will be someone who has repeatedly sinned again and again and again. Even though God has shown you grace, past graciousness. We may puzzle how Israel could do it, but we shouldn't because we ignore God's forgiveness for us. In our psalm, the people have forgotten they have ignored, they have spurned the past grace of God, and they've fallen into some sort of sin again. 
And God has responded in some fashion with chastisement. They're aware of his anger. And yet, what I want us to see is that rather than hiding from God, the psalmist encourages the people to turn to God in their distress. They are feeling God's anger upon them. And he says, turn to God and plead with him. God has forgiven great sins before. God has shown himself gracious and merciful before. And God has not changed. God's character is the same as it was when he showed grace and mercy to them in the past. God has not changed. They've changed in their, their actions, but God has not. He is still the God of grace. He is still the God of mercy. He is the God who is consistent with his own character. And that guarantees that God will again revive his people. He will show his loving kindness once more. The, the people can call on God to grant salvation again because God has in the past. Folks, it's not because we are improving enough in our spiritual lives that we can approach God in times of distress. It is because God is gracious enough that we can approach God in times of distress. We do not earn the right to appeal to God. We can have confidence from the past in our appeal to God. This is something we really, really need to grow, grab a hold of in our Christian lives. One of the tricks that the devil and his minions tries to play with us over and over again, the trick they try to pull is to whisper in our ears when we've sinned that we have messed up too badly to face God. That, that we need to be embarrassed to, to go before God. We shouldn't pray to God because God is mad at us for our sins. Friend, that's a lie from the devil. Yes, God is angry over our sin, but it's an anger of chastisement to correct us. It's actually an expression of love from God. When, when God is mad with our sin, it's precisely the time that we should cry out to God in prayer. We can throw ourselves on God's grace and mercy, calling on him to revive us again. Assuming we're believers... We are already forgiven for whatever sin it is that has brought this chastisement out. Yes, we need to confess that we failed God again. We need to admit that sin is sin. We should thank God for the forgiveness that he gives us in Christ while we're in our sin. But we do that with holding on to the confidence that, that his grace and his mercy is real. We, we do that, we cry out to him rejoicing in God's loving kindness as the psalmist does here in verse 7. That, that covenantal love that God has shown, that's what we hold on to as we cry out to God. Our salvation is secure because God is gracious. Not because we are good. We've experienced God's grace in the past. We can turn to God in our distress now, even when our distress is the result of our own sinful actions. God's past graciousness 
encourages us to turn to him in our distress. Our main idea is building here. It's building, but it's not complete. In the final half of the verse, we, we add on another thought to our idea. God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress, trusting that he will show mercy again. Trusting. Verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress, trusting that he will show mercy again. Did you notice as I read these final verses here in the psalm that our psalmist is no longer pleading with God? Verses 1 through 7, he's talking God. He's addressing God. That's, verses 1 through 7 is a prayer. Starting in verse 8, he shifts. He shifts and talks to the people. He begins talking about God. Our psalmist has cried out to God and he's led the people to do likewise. And now he expresses his confidence in what God will do for his people. What I want to recognize is that the confidence here is not so much in what God will do as in who God is. Yes, the, the psalmist expects God to, to do things. He expects God to respond to his prayers. He says God is going to speak peace to his people in verse 8. Peace, that, that's that wonderful Hebrew word, shalom. It, it means not only that there's an absence of hostility, but, but there's also renewal of positive relationship. There's shalom. He expects that God will speak shalom to his people still. The, the reason that the psalmist expects God to do this is because of the being of God rather than the ability of God. Sure, God is able to speak peace, but he's able to do that because of who he is. It's God's character that the psalmist spends his time describing. Let's look quickly at some of the aspects of God's being, his, his character here. In verse 9, God is, is a God who grants salvation to those who fear. There's our word as Pastor Aaron started our service with, our, our theme for the year, those who fear, those who show reverence to God. Those who fear or reverence him. He, he does this so that his glory will be on display throughout the land. God wants the world to see that he is a God worthy of of fear and reverence. God's desire is to manifest his character in a visible way by saving those who reverence him as their God. Verse 10, four of God's divine qualities are, are listed. We have loving kindness and truth. They're, they're presented really as people who form a friendship. They're personified. Loving kindness and people, they are loving kindness and truth, they come together. 
Well, these are a couple of Hebrew words that, that show up frequently in Old Testament passages that, that deal with the covenant, where we talk about God's covenant loyalty, his, his loving kindness, that, the hesed of God, along with, with his truth, his emmet, his, his faithfulness. In fact, this evening, or I knew I'd say that, this afternoon, we're having our afternoon service when we turn back to Zechariah. These two come together in one of our verses again because we're dealing with the covenant of God in Zechariah 7. These are, are coupled here in verse 10 with two more characteristics, righteousness and peace. Verse 10 actually presents them, I, I love the personification, and righteousness and peace, they're, they're presented as two lovers who, who meet one another with great joy, sharing a kiss. In verse 11, truth and righteousness, they again make a, a second appearance, this time displayed as coming together from heaven and earth to bind them in, in uniform partnership. A perfect partnership. The, the point is, God is all these things. God is loving kind. God is truth. God is righteous. God is peace. Righteousness makes a final appearance in verse 13. Now pictured as one who goes before God, preparing for God to act on behalf of his people. God is righteous. And he goes before righteousness, then goes before God, instilling itself in God's people, allowing God to bless his people again with good things, as verse 12 states. Why? Why does God do this for people who have sinned? Why does God install righteousness in people who have sinned and been unrighteous? Because of who he is. It's not based on the people, it's based on God. Because of who God is, he is a God who does good because he is good. He is a God who does good for the undeserving. He is a God who does good because he is merciful. The psalmist expresses these things to the people because he's prayed to this God. He's asked God for mercy because he knows God's character. He trusts then that God will show mercy. You know, friends, this is the kind of confidence that we need to have in our God. We should trust that when we pray to God, God will show mercy to us again. After all, God, our God, is the same God as the psalmist's God. Our God has these same characteristics because he's the same God. Now, I can almost hear a few of you thinking, but pastor, you don't know how badly I've messed up. God is mad. Capital M, capital A, capital D, ma'am, M-A-D, mad at me. I can't pray to God. God won't show mercy to me. God shouldn't show mercy to me. He should be mad at me because I'm that bad. Well, if those are kind of thoughts bouncing around in your head, let's review three things. One, God's mercy doesn't depend on you. It depends on who he is. And no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you mess up, you have not changed God. 
You're not that powerful. You will never deserve God's mercy. God shows mercy because of who he is. You will never deserve his loving kindness. God shows loving kindness because of who he is. Loving kindness, truth, righteousness, and peace, no matter what you've done, you have not taken these away from God. You must trust in his mercy because of him and him alone. So that's number one thing we need to review. Number two, anticipating that, that God will show you mercy does not mean that you will not have a hard time. Mercy does not mean an easy life. Sometimes I think we look at the fact that we've messed up and there's ongoing consequences in our lives to say, well, God must still be mad at me. Mercy does not mean an easy life. The psalmist was going through a hard time. His nation was going through a hard time. You may be going through a hard time. And your hard time may, in fact, be God's mercy. As I've mentioned several times, sin is enjoyable. I mean, let's just be frank about it. Sin is enjoyable. It feels good. At least in the short term, it feels good. It, it lets us feel powerful. After all, sin is ultimately doing what we want. It, it, sin is throwing off any binding restraints and, and just doing what we want, and that feels good. Our natural self wants that. Sin feels good until it doesn't. If God never caused sin to feel other than good, why would we ever turn from it? God brings consequences upon us for our sin because he is merciful. God is keeping us from enjoying sin so much that we never turn away. He's keeping us from enjoying it too much. He, he did this for Israel. Even though his mercy included the exile, he did it because they were his people. He was doing it again in the psalmist's day after the exile. God may be doing it in your life. That might be the reason you're still experiencing hardship. It reminds you to trust in the mercy of God and turn from sin. Trusting in God's mercy should never lead us to think that the problems we bring into our lives will disappear. Three, we also need to remember that we might be having troubles trusting in God's mercy because we are confusing mercy and peace. We're confusing mercy and shalom. Look carefully at verse 8 again. I will hear what God the Lord will say. For he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. God will speak peace to his people, but, there is a but, a condition that's placed here on God's peace. But they must not turn back to their folly. Folly in the Bible is the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom, from a biblical standpoint, is living our lives in conformity to God's word, doing what God has said, recognizing it's his creation, it's his world. He has designed it so he has the right to define the rules for it. 
Wisdom is just living according to God's rules. Folly is the opposite. Folly is living our lives according to our order of things. Setting our rules for this world. Wisdom, we, we live within God's framework, God's boundaries. Folly, we live within our framework, our, our own boundaries. Well, experiencing God's peace, his shalom, is dependent on not returning to folly. Not straying from, from God's order of things back into our order of things. It was folly that brought the problems for Israel in the first place that led to the exile. It was folly that caused them to go back into sin and brought whatever problems they're dealing with now. Sin creates problems. Returning to sin destroys the offer of God's peace. It, it destroys the harmonious relationship that God offers his people. Shalom is not just the absence of, uh, of hostilities, it's the presence of a relationship. Harmony. The reason you might struggle with trusting God's mercy is that you're living your life, or at least trying to live your life, in a divided manner. You, you want God's peace, so you trust God some of the time. But you like your sin so much that you ignore God other parts of the time. Probably, you trust God when you're in church, because, hey, I need to do what God has said. But, you know when those opportunities to indulge in my favorite sin come up? Well, let, let's just ignore that and do what I want. We, we try to go back and forth. You, you bounce back and forth between Christian obedience and worldly living. Boom, boom, back here and forth. Or maybe we should apply biblical terms to what you're doing. You, you bounce back and forth between wisdom and folly. You, you think to yourself that this should work. I'm wise some of the time, so I should have shalom at least some of the time, but, well, you lack shalom, don't you? You lack shalom because you're not bouncing back and forth between wisdom and folly. You are living in folly. There is no divided life for the Christian. There is no back and forth. There is only one way or the other. We either live in wisdom according to God's world order or we live in folly according to our world order. If you're a child of God, God has already given you mercy because God has already forgiven you for living your life in folly from day one. Yet part of God's mercy for the believer is he withholds peace until we truly pursue wisdom. Friends, you can trust God and his mercy. We can also experience real peace with God, but our peace comes because we listen to what God has said. All of what God has said. We pursue wisdom. In fact, when we live for God, peace comes regardless of our circumstances. This week, I was told about a man who, who found peace while he was in jail. He, found, he was in jail for sinful crimes he had committed, and he found peace while he was in jail. God would forgive his sins 
through faith in Jesus. That's what he learned in jail. The, the guy who told me the story said it was kind of humorous because he went to jail, and while he was in jail, he found a, a Bible in the jail there, and he started reading that Bible. But he didn't really want that. But he was moved to another jail. In that next jail, he found a Bible. So he started reading it there. Then he was moved again. He found peace because that Bible kept pointing him to Jesus. And in faith with Jesus, he found his sins were forgiven. And he turned from folly to wisdom. He remained in jail for several more years, but that had no bearing whatsoever on his peace. He had experienced the mercy of God. We can find peace regardless of our circumstances. We can trust that God will show mercy again. Regardless of what we may have brought, done that brought our hardships on in the first place, we can trust God. We can trust God because God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress, trusting that he will show mercy again. We've built our main idea now. We've built the main idea. This is the idea developed from Psalm 85. God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress, trusting that he will show mercy again. Assuming you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have experienced the, the graciousness of God in your past. You have the foundation. God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress, trusting that he will show mercy again. God, in his grace and in his mercy, he does bring hardships into our lives. He loves us enough to do that. He does that so that we will turn to him, so that we will plead to him. We will offer a prayer of mercy. God's past graciousness encourages us to turn to him in our distress, trusting that he will show mercy again. Father, you are a great God, a glorious God, a wonderful God, a God of mercy. Father, this morning we've been reminded through this psalm of who you are. A God who never changes. A God who is glorious in so many ways, who shows such incredible glory through saving us. Sinners who rebelled against you. But Father, you are a God who is filled with righteousness and peace. A God who has loving kindness and truth. And a God who will never turn from those he has saved. So Father, I don't know what each person is facing here today, but they may very well be facing the hardship because they're trying to return to folly. And you and your faithfulness are not allowing that to go without hardship. You're not allowing us to pursue sin without feeling the, the ongoing consequences of that sin. Not allowing us to pursue sin and still have peace with you, but Father, there may be someone here today who is in great turmoil because you have taken the peace away knowing that they need to turn from sin. And I pray today that, Father, you would open their eyes to see that was required is to bow before you.
to call out to you in distress, confessing and begging for mercy. Father, if there is someone here today that has never done that for the first time, has never bowed before you knowing that the only way to come before holy God is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I pray today would be the day that you would draw that person to yourself. Father, you are a great God, a merciful God, a God that we seek to love more and more, a God who loved us so much he sent his son to die for us, a son in whose name we pray, Amen.